What's up, Fim Fam? Welcome to episode nine. This is our second PPCCMM, where we go over some personal points, sit back in the coach's corner, and hopefully the content will help motivate you on this magical Monday. But the two topics we're going to go over, thank you for these that were sent my way. How to enhance your cardio, especially if you have goals relating to fat loss and weight loss. And the second one, we're going to be going over, is it safe to perform deep squats? Now, this will be a little bit lengthy of an episode because of these topics I'm very passionate about. So hopefully I don't bore you with them. Um, But without further delay, let's just get right into them. Thank you guys again. Hey there, Fim fam. Welcome to another PPCCMM episode. If you are new to the podcast or don't know what the heck I just said, this type of episode is a little bit more relaxed. It uh, it stands for Personal Points, Coach's Corner, and Motivational Monday, where I hopefully, I, I've picked a couple uh, topics and questions that have been sent my way, so hopefully I can just answer them to the best of my ability, instead of just going over some topics that have been on my agenda or a part of my planning since I've started this whole podcast from the get-go. But let's get into it without further delay. The two topics I have picked from the list, the first one, it states, how do I know if I'm doing cardio the right way? And how can I possibly enhance how I do cardio if I have goals relating to weight loss or, or fat loss? And then that's, that's a great question. And I'm going to try to answer that either through my experiences, through what I've done, you know, up, up through grad school with my schooling or just what I've start, continued learning uh, at my gym specifically with the members and clients there. The second question is everything really to do about deep squatting. Is it bad for the knees? Who should or should not be doing deep squats? Should we be doing deep squats at all? And when, when we talk about deep squats, we're talking about full range of motion or just, uh, you know, below 90 degrees or below parallel uh, and really wh- whatever type of squat, the back squat, a goblet squat, uh, a body squat. Um, and that's an, that's a great one too. I'm, I'm pretty passionate about that topic. If you don't know me, uh, again, I, I want to approach this from a, a non-biased approach. There's a lot of great information about, about this question. So I'm going to answer it mostly because it gets me fired up in a way that we, we've heard some things, read some things a long time ago, and we still think it applies today, even if it was like 50 years ago. But things have changed, things have evolved, and things have been researched more that we've we've been educated a lot better that we should be able to get away from things that that are a little bit more false, just because, again, we've gathered more information and uh, we can't just resort back, especially just say 100% this way is the right way and not that way. So those are the two questions, things about how to enhance the way you do cardio. And then let's talk about most things with deep squatting. Now, I find this first question very interesting, mostly because the word cardio is such a broad topic and it's such a just a broad statement, right, that uh, it creates a lot of controversy and confusion. And the more that you know, researchers look into this, there are some things that are pretty set in stone that we know can assist with improving human health. And there are some things that work for some and not for others. So there's a lot of back and forth with 
other areas of cardio. Uh, but when we answer this first part, you know, how do I know if I'm doing cardio the right way? The easy answer is just something that you're comfortable with. We can probably find a, a method or a modality that, that you can feel comfortable on, and then we can chip away at how to be more specific with, with it. So uh, in the gym, this is going to be just a basic uh, an example here. So bear with me, but the, most gyms, you know, they're laid out with half of, half of the gym is cardio and half of the gym is strength training. And I know there's going to be some people out there that kind of bark at me saying, Hey, you can definitely do some heart rate things and cardio on the, on the strength training side. And I totally get that. But just to keep it simple, let's think of it this way on the cardio side, the, there are these things called cardio machines that we can put humans on and then either sustain and maintain a certain intensity or speed. Uh, and therefore we could probably predict what they are doing what they are utilizing on said machine. That might be a little more difficult to measure and quantify on the, the strength training side. So uh, just to reiterate on that, cardio machines, we want to have some sort of you know cyclical um, motion or intensity, something that we can maintain or, uh, or or change whenever we want to, and then hopefully stay on that machine for a certain period of time, uh, assuming that we are burning either car uh, carbohydrates or fat. Um, I'm going to start getting into that a little bit more to answer the second part of this question. Now, how can I enhance what I do for cardio, especially for fat utilization, fat loss, and therefore weight loss? So if, if we think of those heart rate uh, those heart rate sheets that you sometimes see on cardio machines, right? Uh, they give you some estimations on where to put your heart rate or uh, where your fat burn zones are versus your non-fat burn zones. Um, I get why they are on the machines, but I feel that we either ignore them or we get almost too hypersensitive on what they're recommending where that might be a disservice to you. So let's get into like heart rate zones and what we should look for if we truly want to either be in fat utilization or working on other things. I actually looked at one of these heart rate sheets on our treadmills uh, the other day. And this, this brand specifically mentioned, you know, just to give you an idea is like about 60% of your max heart rate is where you should be for your fat burn zone or your fat utilization zone. That is a that's an okay recommendation, but let's put uh, some numbers to this so that you can you can kind of see where this might be a little off. But then also it'll give you a better idea of how to maybe calculate this out for yourself. And I get why heart rate can be great uh, because it's something more tangible than just our own like perceived exertion, how hard we think we're working. And it's non-invasive, but a lot of things can affect heart rate other than just the physiological responses we're having in our body to adapt to the workload of the machine, right? So like if you had pre-workout or lots of caffeine that day, um, if, if you were, you know, if you were rushing to the gym or were in, in traffic, uh, if you're dehydrated, that where you might already be at an elevated heart rate, before you even started the machine. So I, I know why heart rate can be helpful, but we do have to be careful, which is where I'm, I'm hoping to sort of give you guys some information so you can 
you can figure out how to be a little more specific than just those heart rate zones. But uh, this one, again, this machine I was looking at said six, about 60%, 60% of your max heart rate is where you want to be for fat burn. Okay, cool. Well, let's put some numbers to that. So if let's say um, Jim, that's just a made up name, but let's say Jim has a max heart rate of 190 beats per minute. So that if he were to work at his max and get to his you know, genetic ceiling or just his ceiling of heart rate uh, and effort, let's say it's 190 beats per minute. If we took 60% of that, that would be about 114 beats per minute. Let's just say 115. If we can picture what 115 beats per minute looks like as far as work and intensity, that that's I don't, in my eyes that's not very hard right that's not um it, it is more taxing than just walking around your house or walking around a walmart um but let's dive into it a little bit more on a treadmill 115 beats per minute if this individual is you know at least a little bit conditioned um that might just be at like a a decent walk or a very slight incline on the treadmill. Um, the, the reason why I, I, I wanna throw caution to this is, yes, we can sustain that intensity for a long period of time versus if we were to be doing intervals, right? Kind of on and off at super intense uh, workloads and then resting for a certain period of time. We can sustain 115 beats per minute for a very long time if we wanted to, 20, 30, 40 minutes, but is it the area of which your body decides to use fat or lots of it to your benefit to get you closer to whatever fat loss or weight loss goals you might have? Here would be a good time to introduce some examples of what we did in grad school to find someone's relative and absolute intensities of where they are utilizing fats versus carbohydrates. and. Our gyms at Lifetime Fitness, we were actually able to do these or simulate these same assessments and tests. Uh, they were called active metabolic assessments versus um, the ones that we did in grad school. Um, but since the you know COVID and the shutdowns, uh, we haven't been able to, to continue them yet. But um, I think you'll see that once we can find someone's like specific, like absolute and relative intensities in which they burn fat or not, um, you'll find that these heart rate charts that you see on the treadmills really low ball in my opinion kind of where you should be uh but then we can again in, uh branch off on that towards the end of this episode on how you guys can enhance your own cardio program but i felt like we needed to add some more numbers to this and dive way deep so that we can back up and start having the discussions of how to make it for you so um in grad school we did what's called indirect calorimetry tests and these are the tests where think of like on a Gatorade commercials, they kind of, you might see these, the athletes are running on a treadmill. They have like a mask over their, over their mouth um, and over the face, just to, to grab all of the air that they're breathing in and out. Then there's tubes hooked up, up to them, blah, blah, blah. But those are essentially what, what these tests are. Those masks should help measure how much air is going out and how much air is going in. So those, th there are two sensors uh, attached to that mask. One sensor measures the oxygen coming in and going out, and there we can find the value that's called VO2. The other sensor measures 
the amount of CO2 going in and out, and we call that value uh, VCO2. So with those two values, uh, it's very cool. We get like real-time feedback as the subject is is on the machine, whether it's a bike or a treadmill. We did we did both, um, and I actually was a subject in, in many of these of these tests, j just to really out of my own curiosity, but just to help. Um, help our class and our program go so that we didn't, we could still have volunteers and subjects to work on. But anyway, with those two values, VO2 and VCO2, we then can calculate out what's called respiratory quotient or RQ. And if you can sort of, I'm, hopefully I'm not making this confusing, you can kind of keep up with me, but the respiratory quotient is where the magic happens. That's when where we can figure out what you are utilizing at that intensity and at that time. So the RQ, respiratory quotient, is VCO2 over VO2. So if we look at this now, uh, at any given time, if, if we are truly 100% burning or utilizing fat, that respiratory quotient number will be 0 0.7. So again, if it's VCO2 over VO2, if it's less than 1, that means we are consuming or breathing more oxygen than we are breathing out CO2. And actually 70%, right? 70% of the amount of oxygen you're breathing in, uh, you're, you're breathing out CO2. So just think of it this way. We are just breathing in more oxygen than we are producing CO2 out. And that hopefully makes sense. When we think of fat, metaboli fat metabolism, there should be a lot of oxygen present. But also, think of what this looks like on a cardio machine. Um, it's at an intensity where you're still breathing in quite a bit of oxygen, enough to tell your body that you know we should be should be metabolizing fat, but not at too much of an intensity or too high of an intensity where you are producing a lot of CO2. Okay, so now as we move the needle, and let's say we start to uh, see that fat utilization drop. Um, that usually means that the intensity is going up or, um, and, and we'll get over this. There's a lot of caveats to this, but if 0 0.7 is where we see hundred percent fat utilization at 1.0 now is where we see hundred percent, this utilization coming from glucose or carbohydrates. So we're no longer, you know, diving into these long carbon chains of fatty acids where we're burning lots of fat at 0.7. We are now at an intensity or your body is now in a state where it's it's using mostly glucose and carbohydrates as fuel. And as far as breathing goes, uh, that respiratory quotient is now 1.0. Okay, so those are numbers. Those are things really interesting. We could keep going on about this. These are This is what was so interesting and fascinating to me about grad school because we never did this in undergrad, at least not as much. Um, but especially how to tie that to like the gym and fitness world. Most facilities don't have these tests available, uh, but it is interesting to know. Now, um, I guess we can assume that if you were to just calculate out 60% of your max heart rate, that you would probably be, you know, close to that 0.7 respiratory quotient. You know, you might be a little bit below it. Um, but you, you probably are still burning some fat calories, hopefully, but the, some exceptions to this or the caveats to this, um, is that, you know, I, I've seen or, or read that insulin resistant 
individuals. So those individuals who, um, you know, their insulin responses are not ideal and not optimal. That usually means that their, um, that their glucose and, and blood sugar regulation is not where it needs to be and can result in like too much, right? Bloodstream uh, glucose. So there's just so, so much sugar and carbohydrates and glucose free flowing in their, in their bloodstream because their insulin um, isn't doing what it's supposed to. And therefore, I see in those individuals that their body now has been taught to always be burning carbohydrates, no matter what intensity, at rest, at low intensity, steady state, at high intensities. And they're just, their bodies have almost forgotten how to burn and utilize fat. In other individuals, um, oh, so so with those insulin resistant individuals, sometimes we see that respiratory quotient um, you know, 0.9 or above, closer to 1.0, um, even at rest, when they should be closer to 0.7. Um, but also the, the like any individual who might be, let's say, very new to fitness or deconditioned or just metabolically inefficient, they could also be starting rather high, closer to 0 0.9, 1.0. Um, no matter what intensity we put them at, they're just sugar burning individuals. And that can be an issue. Definitely. If you're trying to lose weight and lose fat, but your body, for some reason, whether it's an insulin issue or your decondition or whatever, your body is only burning sugars and carbohydrates. Uh, we need to do some sort of intervening, whether it's through nutrition or uh, your exercise program to get you to start burning some fat. Um, hopefully that sort of mapped some, some things out in your brain. I do want to leave you guys though. Now using the information, some actionable items. I'm going to be using some verbiage, more lifetime fitness specific, just because that's kind of what I'm used to and where I've worked at for quite some time. Um, but you can use this information however you want. Uh, when we talk about cardio training and heart rate zones on where to where to program someone depending on if we're trying to you know build their base and burn more fat or work on cardiovascular fitness and heart health and increasing their vo2 max we think of zone one through five so think of zone one of where we want to be zone one and two we've calculated out where you want to be burning fat work on recovery uh, it's just low intensity steady state all the way up to zone five which is really where your where your ceiling is where your max heart rate is where we can do high intervals um, and everything like that. But when I use zone one, two, three, four, five, that's what I'm talking about. Zone one is more down here and zone five is up there. Um, again, I, I do realize that uh, the information I just supplied as far as what we did with the indirect calorimetry tests in, in grad school, all that is very specific and that's great, but most gyms don't have those. Uh, therefore, we don't have the information to go off of. Um, but if we, if we want to get, you know, if we can't get as specific as that, but we want to get more specific than those heart rate zone sheets that you see on the treadmill, these are the recommendations that I have. So for someone who wants to, again, answer this question that was sent to me, if we want to enhance where we do our cardio to promote more fat loss and fat burn, I recommend someone usually on getting three, maybe four days a week of like zone one and two. In the zone one and two, it might be around that 60% of your max heart rate. It, for most, it's much higher than that. We're talking about like 135 to 155, all the way up to like 160, 165 beats per minute, where they are doing what we call low intensity, steady state cardio training. 
Of course, 135 might feel way different than 165 beats per minute, but um, uh, that's where I've seen most people in their zone one and two. And if we think of zone one and two, these are intensities that we can sustain for a long period of time for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, all the way up to like 30 minutes, uh, just to what I call their base. So this is where we want them to be burning fat because we can have them on the, on the machine for the, for that long. Uh, but also it's a recovery zone. So if you're doing heavy training, if you're doing high intensity, uh, intervals or, or high intensity classes, like we need to not only teach our body to skyrocket our heart rate up, but we need to learn how to bring it down. And that's what those zone one and two, uh, intensities are for, um, the, the, the zone five, uh, again, this, this is where typically as you go up in intensity, we start to shift from burning more fat stores to carbohydrates. So when I say that anyone who has any goals of weight loss or fat loss, they're like, well, if I'm burning most of my fats from zone one and two, why would I go up to zone four or even five if I'm starting to burn more sugars there? In those higher zones, especially zone one, or zone, sorry, especially zone four and five, yes, we might be burning lots of calories compared to zone one and two, but those calories are coming from sugars. We still see the benefits as far as heart health, cardiovascular fitness. That those are the intensities that we can, you know, increase the amount of blood volume we have, and therefore, like our red blood cell count, and we get more efficient at uh, at utilizing oxygen. Um, but indirectly, it can help us burn fat. But while we are doing those type of workouts, we're not necessarily burning a lot of fat calories. Um, but we do also want to be healthy human beings. We want to work on longevity. We want to work on fighting off metabolic diseases. And so those higher zones can help with that. Now, the time windows that we spend in those zones do look a lot different. We cannot hold a zone four or five for 10, 20, 30 minutes. So that's where intervals come in. And uh, an example, if you just want to run with this one, we, there's a, a lot of different interval uh, formats we can go about this, but an easy one is like one minute in zone four or five, and then like three minutes back down in zone two. And then you would do that for like four to six rounds. So if we did one minute up in zone four or five, back down to three minutes in zone two, that would be a four minute round. And if you did that six times, right, that's 24 minutes of doing these type of intervals. Now that gives you some flexibility as far as what machine to do that on. It could be on a treadmill or an elliptical or a bike. And that's the magic of it. It doesn't have to be on one or the other for now. That's where you can, the best way again, is to find something you're comfortable with. The more specific recommendations or ways that you can use that machine now are these, right? Either thinking of zone one and two, okay, I want to teach my body how to utilize fat. Um, if, as long as you're not insulin resistant or you have you know, some metabolic things going on that might be affecting um, how much blood glucose you have in your body, zone one and two should be your fat burn, quote unquote, fat burn zone. And where you can work on recovery when you're doing you know, more strenuous types of activities. Zone four and five is gonna be way up there. So that's where you're gonna have to spend some like 60 seconds up there and then come back down to zone two for a bit and go up and down. So if we were to measure your heart rate and you see it on your phone or on a spreadsheet, it should look more shark tooth it should be up and it should be down and then go back up. So lots of peaks and valleys. And that's a simplified way to look at that, that we're 
we're, we're playing around with not only heart rate. Yes, we're monitoring what your heart rate's doing, but what we're doing under the hood, we are manipulating how your body is adapting to something by changing how much oxygen you're breathing in and how much CO2 you are producing. And then your body's making an, an on, on the spot decision where to pull the substrates from or where to you know um, pull the energy sources from, whether it's fast or carbohydrates. Uh, the zone three, and I know I haven't mentioned that. I, I said more one and two and then four and five. Zone three, um, that's where you can work on like like uh, aerobic threshold. And uh, <laughs> those tend to be very uncomfortable days. Uh, think of like a zone one and two. It's a little bit easier. And I say easy, but still productive. Um, and then zone four and five, it's, it's max effort. Zone three is kind of in the middle. But you would spend, and this here's just a, a light example, like a zone three, you'd you'd spend like three minutes in zone three, and then one or two minutes back down in zone one and two, and then back up to zone three. For my clients specifically, they hate zone three days because most of them can can deal with being in zone four for like 30 to 60 seconds and then come down for a few minutes and then go back up there. But if you think of how uncomfortable zone three can be, and then I'm telling you to hold that pace for three minutes, uh, a lot of my clients prefer zone four days, four and five days, doing intervals, than holding uh, long periods in zone three. But there's where we can work on uh, like aerobic threshold. So that's when we start to move the needle on like our VO2 max and a lot of great things like that. Uh, on paper, that's you know, right smack dab in the middle. And the same goes for our respiratory quotient. That's where we're, we're usually burning 50% uh, fat and 50% carbohydrates. So with all of those recommendations, you can sort of map out on a weekly basis, depending on how many days you have available to do cardio training. Let's say you're, you know, four, let's say yeah, four days, four days you want to do cardio. One of those days could be doing intervals, zone four and five, like I just recommended. Another day could be doing zone three. And then two of those days could be zone one and two. You could map it out that way. If you have more days than that, great. Maybe you add in one extra zone one and two day or one extra interval day. Uh, if you have less than that, um, if your goal is truly losing fat mass, I would try to get more of your days under that zone one and two type of intensity, maybe a zone three. Um, later, once you can get more days in your week to work on cardio, yes, then start putting in some some more high intensity days. Now, uh, that's one example. One, if I were to be talking to one person and recommend it that way, I could feel pretty comfortable doing that. Now, my recommendations over the years have changed dramatically of how many zone you know, high intensity days versus zone one and two days, depending on what your goals are. I know I have some clients who their goals are, are losing some fat mass, but they're also, they're wanting to get conditioned. They want to eventually train for a 5k or some sort of activity like that, where we can't just, you know, for three months do zone one and two days. Like we need to do something more than that, but then it also depends on how frequently they can work on this. So that's where it gets very personalized and very specific, but just on the average person and for the average client for the average frequency of four days a week that's what i would start with and that's what i would recommend for you all right guys that's all i'm going to touch on for that first question uh we went a little back and forth as far as i guess how i attacked that question but 
I'm hoping it either gave you some information that you can run with or it sparked some new questions and things we can go over. But let's then transition to the last question as far as deep squatting and how it can uh, affect the knees or I guess how people view that it affects the knees. Um, a sneak peek here, just kind of a teaser. I'm going to briefly go over this one because I know that I'm going to have another episode coming out uh, going a little bit deeper than this. So I apologize, Kalea, I think is your name. Sorry if I just totally butchered that name. I might have just lost a new follower there. But anyway, Kalea sent me this question as um, like as far as deep squatting and is it bad for the knees? Uh, I could literally have probably like a seven-day conference on this and and keep my passion up. I do get fired up about this question because uh, there is so much controversy about it, like anything else. Um, and I, I do approach it in a way, again, that is is just from, from facts that I've gathered from research, not just because I think this way. I actually thought the other way. I was on the other side of the fence thinking that I did not need to go below parallel. And some don't, but I'm going to get into that. But just so you guys know, if this topic is very interesting to you, either wait for the episode that I dive deeper on it or just reach out. But just know I'm just going to, in today's episode uh, for this PPCCMM, I'm going to briefly go over it on just a couple points. If you haven't heard this whole debate about deep squatting and how it affects the knees, here's the gist of it. Here's where most of the debate is. If you decide to do and perform a squat below parallel or below 90 degrees, uh, does it negatively affect or injure your like ACL or your meniscus? So let's go over those. If we think of the knee joint, it is essentially a hinge joint. We do have four ligaments in the front and back, inside and outside. So it's the ACL and the MCL. So that just means anterior and, or sorry, ACL and PCL. So that's the anterior and posterior ligament. And then we have the MCL and LCL. So that's medial and lateral. So just think of these four ligaments on the front, back, inside and outside, helping to support this awesome joint. Now, if to understand before we dive into this, well, like where did this debate start? When did it start? And then how did it start? Uh, so back in the 1950s, so quite some time ago, uh, there was a claim that was made and his name was uh, Dr. Carl Klein. And he was a, an awesome professional. He was actually the director at, at some point. He was the director of physical therapy at the University of Texas. And uh, what he tried to do is, is test this theory, right? So what he did is he designed this contraption or this device um, that would think of this like a like a like a cast, but it or sorry, a better example is think of um, if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump like the, his first pair of shoes, like those nasty leg braces, it kind of looked like that. And so what was, what was Dr. Uh, Carl Klein testing? He was testing the theory that if you were to squat below parallel, that the, the tendons and ligaments around the knee joint would be over time lengthened and stretched out to a point where, where it could not offer the stability the knee joint needed. Right. So then we, we would if you continue to, to squat below parallel, these ligaments and tendons would lose its elasticity and not be able to support this knee joint. So he designed this this contraption, just like what you see in, in the movie Forrest Gump uh, and had all of these athletes and subjects uh, squat below parallel. 
and using the findings that he had from his own device that he made, uh, he concluded from his findings that uh, squatting below depth or below 90 degrees would hinder an athlete because of these, uh, what he thought, stretched ligaments and tendons. Now, yes, that is like, I think he had one or two articles, which, you know, you always should be very careful when when researching and reading research articles, not only because um, you shouldn't just read the title and read the conclusion, like you need to look at how many subjects were there, how controlled was it, how was it a double blind study, all of these things, yes, but simply put, one or two articles, like shouldn't be enough to persuade, right, a huge claim like this, uh, let alone like the, the, the whole entire general public's uh, opinion about this, but what actually happened and started this domino effect? Um, his his one of his research articles about this this finding uh, was published in the Sports Illustrated uh, magazine, and I think it was in like 1962 it was published. So all of a sudden, you have this this uh, one claim and one research article put in the Sports Illustrated magazine, and then all of a sudden, um, I think like the army or the Marines even started to take out certain movements in their, in their uh, fitness tests that they've had around for a long time because they read this, this article. And then uh, uh, some doctors and physicians were changing the way uh, that they prescribed exercise because, so then you have all of these professions, all of these people and the majority of the population changing their opinions about squatting because of this one claim and one research article, just because it was put on such a, a public platform like the Sports Illustrated uh, magazine. So obviously since then, we've researched this topic much more, but that's what uh, we are working against. And that's what we were trying to prove or disprove. Um, and, and shortly after, what well, it didn't take long, but in the late 1960s, early 1970s, there were a lot of other research articles trying to replicate Dr. Carl Klein's findings and disproved it multiple times. And so that's what I'm going to be going off of, not just because of my opinion. Like I said before, before I started answering this question, I used to never go below parallel because I just heard from different coaches, from, from whoever, that I did not need to go below parallel. And that can, that can be true too. I'm not... After I go over this and share my my findings and, and, and share my my recommendations, I, I, I'm not here saying that everyone should squat below parallel. I'm just saying there is a lot of great evidence proving that squatting below parallel is in fact not an unsafe place to be. But just like any other movement, any other joint, any other uh, movement of exercise, it, it isn't for everyone depending on if you have some mobility issues, some movement pattern issues, muscular deficiencies, right? We need to take those into account that might not let you or allow you go into a deeper squat. But if we look at just how the skeletal system is laid out and how our muscles lay over, like we are usually born with the ability to safely go and squat below parallel. It just might be, you know, there, there just might be a previous injury or something else going on as we get older or whatever that affects the way that we can squat. But um, to, to, to claim that going below parallel uh, will kill everyone. And if you do it, you will immediately die. Um, uh, that's just, that's what I, that's what intrigues me about this. So um, that's where it all started back with Dr. Carl Klein back in the 1950s. So what have we, what have we um, read now? What have we found 
now. Uh, the biggest claims besides the, you know, the stretching of the tendons and the, the ligaments around the knee. Now we look at uh, like the ACL or the meniscus. So the ACL is more specifically the, the ligament on the front part of the knee. And then the meniscus, think of those as like bumper pads within the knee joint um, that just protects so that there's no bone on bone grinding. Um, but let's understand some, some different forces that are on the knee. Again, picture the knee joint, okay? I'm actually holding my hands here, trying to replicate a knee joint, but the forces I was talking about are really two of them. We're gonna be talking about compressive force and shear force. So shear force, just like it sounds, that's like that front to back type of sliding that the knee could possibly do without any support, right? And that's what we want to avoid. That, that's, that's what could lead to uh, unnecessary grinding against the meniscus or those bumper pads I was talking about, or uh, having some trouble with that, especially the ACL ligament in the front of the knee. So if you you put you know knuckles together with two fists and sort of glide them front and back, that's the shear force we are talking about. Um, the other one, compressive force or compression force, that's exactly what it sounds like as well. If just trying to, again, just like fist bumping, right, pushing and compressing uh, the two parts of the knee, or in this case, like the two the two fists together. Um, almost like holding it in place. So you always will have those two forces going when performing a squat, uh, whether it's a shallow squat or a deep squat. Now, when we think of a deep squat, so below parallel, there is an increase of shear force, right? That's kind of the more dangerous type of, of, of force that we want to avoid. But there is a considerable increase of compression force as well. Um, and so all of a sudden we have this inverse correlation that the deeper you squat, the, the in, much more increased compression force that we have um, that almost puts it in what I say, like a pretty safe position for the knee. Um, even though there's an increase of both compression and shear force, the amount of, of compression force that increases with the, the more depth that we have in the squat, um, it will hold that joint more in place. Now, if we think of a much shallower squat, of uh, that shear force is also pretty, you know, pretty considerable, and the compression force uh, is much less. So all of a sudden, we have uh, both compression and shear force at a shallower, de shallower depth, um, but it's a much more susceptible position where that shear force can overtake how much compression force is going on. And there we have that slide and glide go. And most of the, the studies that I uh, read and went over is that that 15 to 30 degrees of depth, if we think of a squat, that's where we are. The ACL is most vulnerable and where the shear force is much greater. And so, yes, a, a 90 degree squat can be great. A deep squat below that isn't necessarily unsafe, um, but again, if you have any underlying things and and previous injuries or just bad mobility, yes, going below parallel m might not be the best for you now. Um, but it it it's that's still not enough to say that deep that squatting deep if you are a healthy human being is bad. Um, that 15 to 30 degrees of of squatting or that that angle in the knee joint that when I said that's more susceptible for the ACL to have some issues. That kind of makes sense. So when we think of sports, right? When we're landing from jumping up to do a layup in basketball, or, or you know, um, 
trying to sprint and then cutting back and forth in, in football, that's usually the, the angle of our knee that we have to then, you know, give us more power production in like a sprint or a jump or landing. Uh, but that's where we see ACL injuries. So uh, if you happen to only have the mobility and flexibility to squat very shallow, yet you are loading more and more weight on the bar or yourself, right? That's where we can start to run into some even more issues if if you are limited with your movement, but adding more more weight to it. I mean, that's just like, in my opinion, that's like some knee issues and ACL issues and meniscus issues uh, given to you on a platter. So if if you have some deficiencies and need to work on your movements, yes, you need to at least safely get down to like a 90 degrees. Uh, a lot of assessments that I go through sometimes, if you have the mobility of getting below parallel, I mean, that's going to be optimal. And this is my opinion. If you have some healthy joints and you can have some very little or some resistance on it, yes, in my opinion, squatting deep can be a, a, a safe place for the knee as well as 90 degrees. But um, I guess my call to action is if you are consistently, you know, quarter squatting out there and loading 500 pounds on the bar, uh, in my eyes and from what I've read, that just cannot be a safe place for the knee. And that's what we need to be studying more or trying to debate more on. The music means we are done with the episode, guys. Thank you so much for hanging with me there. I know this one got a little bit lengthy. I feel like I say that every episode, but uh, these two topics were ones I was very passionate about, so I took a little bit more time to go over them. I greatly appreciate all the questions and feedback you guys are continuing to send me, so feel free to reach out to me. You can reach out to me on whatever platform you're listening to me on or on Instagram. There, my tag is Kyler underscore alpha underscore fitness. All right, fam fam, every two weeks on Mondays, I'm releasing new episodes. So I'm excited to keep this rolling. Um, But that's about it. So I'll see you in two weeks and see you on the flip flop later. Peace out, fam fam.